The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Sportbox. Welcome to the program. Let's get into your headlines this hour. The Dow jumps more than 350 points for its best day in three weeks after the US and China agree to head back to the negotiating table. Stocks across Asia extend gains on trade hopes as investors await today's US jobs report, while Fitch downgrades Hong Kong after months of civil unrest. I'd rather be dead in a ditch than delay Brexit, says the British Prime Minister, who will return to Parliament on Monday and demand an early election for the second time in a week. We either go forward with our plan to get a deal or else somebody else should be allowed to see if they can keep us in beyond October the 30th. And here in Italy, a new government is sworn in in Rome amid market optimism. But the real hard work starts now as these strange bedfellows in government prepare to deliver a budget to Brussels. We're going to speak to top officials and policymakers here at the Ambrosetti Forum in Chernobyl. Very strong session playing out stateside as expected as investors digested the latest twist and turn around trade talks. U.S. officials confirming they will speak in October, which has put back on the agenda that perhaps there could be a trade resolution after the end of what has been a torturous few months of uncertainty for many investors. Uh, one year where many have been waiting for some form of a breakthrough. The markets you can see very much out in front, particularly around the risk on sectors of the market, technology, the Nasdaq, uh, the outperformance, uh, one and three quarters of a percent versus 1.3 on the S&P, 1.4 on the likes of the Dow. One of the other catalysts in session around trade as well was some of the data stateside, very strong uh, numbers crossing on the private payrolls increasing in August at their fastest pace in four months. And don't forget there have been some question marks after we had the ISM about just how strong the US economy was, whether the manufacturing sector was hit, whether we're starting to sell. Some of those strains from the trade tensions hit home in the States, but the payrolls data, private payrolls numbers, very, very decent coming through. Also in U.S. services, that showed a rebound last month to its fastest expansion since February. It does put a huge onus on the non-farm payrolls report today. 158,000 jobs expected to be created the previous month. So investors will be looking for that proof in the data today. But uh, when it comes to uh, some big areas of the markets, uh, we've had the tech-heavy sector well and truly account for a lot of those gains that we saw. U.S. chip makers as a result. Let's just take a quick look at some of those gains that we saw in that component of the market. Uh, Micron technology, 4.7%, one of the best performers there. And you can see uh, for the gains that we had in this sector, Semis uh, posting its best day since June. The overall sector now trading higher by about 4% week to date. Let's just push on away from the likes of Micron and Broadcom Intel to what we had elsewhere across the US tech space. And you can see how the boards also reflected some of those strong gains. The likes of Microsoft up 1.7%. 
Facebook ahead even more, 2%. And you can see uh, some of the other big players, Alphabet and Twitter, 4.4% higher for Twitter. In the commodities area of the market, uh, let's just get up to speed on that. And you can see where some of the appetite has been for crude as a result. Uh, little changes, losing some of the strong gains that we've seen uh, back-to-back gains uh, in two sessions stateside. This morning, we're only in slim ranges up by about a tenth of a percent. But the handle of Brent, 61 56 on WTI, a bit of enthusiasm around a trade deal, potentially that there might be some light where it had very much dimmed in recent months. That's positive for the oil trade. Gold as a result, a casualty. 15.17 in morning trade, just drifting south. And the Asian markets, uh, let's just round out how these markets are, are contending with the latest news flow. Don't forget yesterday there were talks of uh, potential trade uh, resolution as we have at least a conversation now taking place between the two sides and uh, some of that digested by markets yesterday. So this morning, just topping up on some of those levels. Hong Kong's been interesting because Fitch has uh, just a short time ago downgraded Hong Kong to AA from AA plus with its outlook negative after all those months of protests on the streets. The market much higher in the early part of the session, very slim ranges in the afternoon session. The opening calls here in Europe as we looked around at what's been a busy week for many investors. Uh, we've got mixed uh, numbers on the charts. Italy is still looking to chase a little bit more green, 38 the early call, 6 on the DAX, but uh, fairly flat, don't forget, for the FTSE, which has been contending with all sorts of Brexit news and the French market not showing much. But uh, we come up to next week, which will be a big one potentially for Europe as we have ECB stimulus potentially on the way. So investors might just be holding back a little bit as we look to close out the Friday session. World leaders and top minds in business and academia are gathering in Chernobyl for the annual Ambrosetti Forum. The event kicks off just a day after the new Italian government was sworn in and against the backdrop of global trade tensions, U.S. recession concerns and Brexit uncertainty. Well, we're going to talk to Steve about a lot of things this morning, but useful, Steve, maybe just to start with the Italian story here and five-star moving from one marriage of convenience to another. Is there any prospect that this marriage will be more successful? I don't know. Do you know, I, I've thought a lot about this, and uh, like you do and the Karen does before an outside broadcast, you go really into a deep dive into the story, getting right back into it, reminding yourself all the nuances. And I've got to say, I, I'm, I'm spotting a narrative and I'm spotting a, a plan of action from the Italians and from pan-Europe as well, and that's a very important point. But whether there is a plan that will work remains to be seen. I, I think there's something going on across Europe here, and I think that people are trying to put together a narrative that they've listened to the populace and they're putting in a plan for post populism. That's my own phrase. I don't know if that one's going to pick up or not. But, but post-populism, i.e. this government that's being created now looks very much okay, we've listened to the anger of the Lega. We've listened to the anger of the Five Star. And now the PD, which is very, very traditional, is coming together with those populists to try and put forward a plan. They've got a 26-point program. It's very vague at the moment. But in order to say Europe is listening. And it's a similar narrative across the board when we see uh, Mitsotakis, uh, New Democracy. Again, his father was prime minister. He's a former government minister himself, coming into power in Greece, working with the Europeans rather than working with against uh, against Brussels as well. In the Netherlands, uh, the Freedom Party, and we'll speak to Get Wilders, 
and bringing that tape on, on Monday as well. Again, losing points. So there is a narrative coming across Brussels, whether it's right or not, or whether it's just a fallacy, that actually they're moving beyond uh, populism because they're listening. We heard it actually also, it was almost missed amid the Ferrari with Boris Johnson uh, about post-populism with Sajid Javid, didn't we? And all that money he's offering, post-austerity as well. Uh, and they're trying to say, we're listening. There will be a response on the austerity front. But, but there are major, major sticking points. One, the point you made there, marriages of convenience. These parties historically hated each other. And the only person they hate more now is Mr. Salvini. Salvini is furious about this, as you can imagine, because he is still polling greater uh, than the other two parties. He's polling in the region between, depending on what poll we look at, between 32 and 36% here in Italy as well. Um, five star only polls at around about 24%, uh, and the PD less than that as well. So you can see he's still got a huge momentum, and in opposition, he can be very dangerous. In fact, he made a very interesting quote, which I picked up, uh, about Five Star. He goes, well, look at you guys. The party that was born to fight the caste has been more has become more caste than the caste it was created to defeat as well. And I thought that was very interesting as well. So you've got this narrative going on. The problem is, when you get this 26-point program, or, or this new idea going across Europe, you have to deliver on it as well. And then you run into buffers straight away because one of the big buffers is the stability and growth pact is the fact that you've got tight-ish fiscal rules uh, brought in perhaps one might say by Northern Europe to govern the whole of Europe. Uh, and straight away one of the key 26 points from this government is saying yeah we're going to abide by the European rules. We're not going to fight you anymore. And there's a very important point about personnel which I'll come to in a moment as well. We're not going to fight you anymore but we do want you to have less stringent fiscal rules. And that of course goes right to the stability pact. And that goes right back to the stability of Europe and indeed bond markets and other factors if they're going to change the stability pact. The other point as well is they're talking about being fiscally responsible but having an expansionary budget. Listen to that viewers fiscally responsible they're going to preserve budget integrity but also expand the budget. How do you do that in a country that's got debt to GDP of 130 percent? I'll leave that question open. Let me get back to my other point about personnel as well. And the personnel point uh, is that there's really big pro-Europeans coming back into the government and representing uh, the country at a European level. Look who is the commissioner, the new Italian commissioner. He hasn't got a role yet, but that the Italians have put forward for the EU. It's Gentiloni, again, uh, a former prime minister, part of the establishment as well. And look at the finance minister, and this is very interesting as well. The former finance minister was Trier. He was a professor of economics, and quite frankly, he was overwhelmed by Mr. Salvini. And you and I have got our own tales, Jeff, of how we tried to pin Mr. Trier down on fact over the last couple of years, and have failed to do so in many ways as well. The new finance minister is Roberto Gualtieri. Now, all our Brussels friends out there, well, I recognise that name. And you should recognise that name because not only is he PD, but he's also been, wait for it, guys, the head of the European Parliamentary uh, Commission or Committee uh, on Monetary and uh, Financial Affairs. So you've got a company man representing Italy at the financial level. So that should take away a lot of that antagonism as well. It's a bold experiment, this. I'll give them that. I'm going to run with your theory about post-populism and what those politicians look like because in the Washington Post today, a very interesting article about the Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte, who was meant to be a bit of a caretaker, someone they plucked out of academia. They're saying, look at this man. He survived uh, a change in coalition partners and brokered uh, effectively a new government that's more suited to his moderate views. Who is this man? Someone who was quite a, a low-key figure no one thought would stick around for long and now he's actually picking up a lot of appeal with Italians. Is 
is there a lesson in that for Italy? Is there a lesson in that potentially even for the UK about what type of leaders people really want, even if they think they want a different type of leader who's more boisterous and bombastic? Perhaps they want someone a little bit more low-key. Well, as you quite rightly say, he's not a politician. He's a lawyer for a start. So, yeah, I, guess, I think there is a lesson in the Italian way of doing things. But let's face it, this isn't brand new, having a, a technocracy, if that's the right word, or technocratic governments as well. We've had technocratic governments right since the peak of the crisis, Karen. So, yes, I hear what you're saying as well. But don't forget Mario Monti, Mr. Letter as well. These people were seen as more technocrat uh, than politician in many ways. But it is an extraordinary mix uh, of, of characters at the top. And one just argues, wonders, how can this last any more than the previous, I think, 66 governments in the last 74 years in Italy as well. I mean, think about it. De Maio uh, basically only went into this, only went into this uh, agreement uh, with the PD after he put to an online vote on the Russo platform that Grio set up originally as well. It's, it's, a, it's a voting platform and a whole host of things for five-star members. When he got 79%, around about 79,000 uh, members saying, yes, yes, we can go for this one as well. It only went forward then. So if it, if you're talking about this coalition, uh, uh, basically was on a pivot, whether 79,000 people voted for it or not as well. You can see it's incredibly fragile. It's fragile about the budget. Just one more point about, about Italy. They've got to find 23 billion euros in savings if they don't want to bring forward a VAT hike, because that's another part of the, the populist agenda. So they said, no, OK, we're not going to bring this uh, mandated VAT hike in. But if they do, don't do that. They've got to find 23 billion euros. And what did the market say? Market said, yeah, buy BTPs. We'll have some of those because things look better than they could have been which would be another election. Anyway, we'll leave that for a moment. But what is very interesting is speaking to a lot of people already. And you know, actually, and, and they're not being smug. They're just being giving a wry smile when you tell them you're an English journalist. And they look at you and go, Boris. Because <laughs> yeah, at the moment, the British situation uh, is, is making even the Italians laugh. And the Italians say, look, we invented political chaos. We invented this. And you British have taken it away from us and taken it to a new level as well. And I don't think they're being smug. I think they're just being quite wry and relieved it's not them for a change as well. But I spoke to Valeria de Moli, who is the head of of the European House Ambrosetti, the man who puts together what I think is a very interesting event every year as well. Uh, and we talked about Brexit as well, uh, and we talked about chaos. Listen in. I was pretty sure until uh, a few months ago that uh, in Italy we were the experts of the political chaos and of the political confusions until the moment when England arrived as a star in this uh, phenomenon. Uh, actually was quite shocking even the brother of the prime minister left him and changed parties uh, uh, a few, I think he's few giving, minutes ago giving up as an mp i think as well i mean he's just had, well. enough, had yeah. enough of it well, yeah. uh, it's it's fantastic so uh who knows uh as a as, as a truly european uh, citizen and uh, person, uh, you know, I, I'm doing my outing now in love of the European dreams as the father founders of Europe designed it. Um, I feel frustrated about this situation and I don't think it's a good idea for anyone in Europe. But as much as even for the a British problem, this is also a failure it of is. Europe. It is. One of the strongest economies, one of the most capitalist-minded economies, a great ally in many ways of what Frau Merkel has been trying to do in Germany, uh, ha has left Europe, is leaving Europe potentially. 
uh, and that's got to leave everyone worse off, hasn't it? I agree with you. I agree with you. And uh, England is counting a significant percentage of all the European strengths in terms of GDP, in terms of added value, in terms of service industry, banking industries. So how has Europe let that happen? That is a failure of Europe, as, as Ivan Rogers wrote in a very recent piece, and Ivan Rogers is dismayed at what's happened domestically. He, he, he wrote, this is a failure of two to tango. It takes two people to dance and it is a European failure. Why did they not give Cameron a better deal? Why didn't they give May a better deal? Why didn't they see what could potentially happen and head this one off? Well, probably one of the answers could be that was Cameron's mistakes to go for the referendum. Uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, one of the key guests we have here, one of the largest global investors we have here at the Ambrosetti, the European House Ambrosetti event this year, the 45th edition, just said a few minutes ago uh, that when he spoke to Cameron a few hours before the referendum, he was pretty sure that uh, the Brexit would not have taken place. At least this is what was reported earlier. Um, so. I agree with you and uh, that's a pity and I hope that uh, you may have another referendum to, you know, make some oh, but change. Then that makes Valeria Dimoli speaking to me. Look, guys, we've got to have a sense of humour about what's going on. So, and and as, as Valeria is saying, I thought we invented political chaos. You Brits, nice job. Now, look, Karen, Jeffrey, because I love you, I'm going to give you something very special on this Friday. I'm going to give you virtually a day off because I've got some amazing guests for you. OK, here we go. In about 15 minutes, Francesco Staracci, the CEO of Enel, Europe's largest utility as well. Then I've got Neil Ferguson. And my goodness me, he's been saying some interesting things. He, of course, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Then I've got Marcus Kerber. I'm going to speak. He's the Minister of the Interior for Germany. We're going to speak about a whole host of big issues and about German leadership as well. Do you want some more? OK, I'll give you Mohammed El Erian, who is the chief economic advisor uh, over at Allianz. And if you want to talk about the market as well, I've got Jason Bordoff, a former advisor on energy to Obama. He's going to be speaking about Saudi and about OPEC a little bit later on. So, guys, put your feet up and relax. Back to you. Oh, terrific, Karen. I'm so pleased that Steve's finally holding up his end of the programme because he's so shy and retiring normally. I know, he doesn't, doesn't get really his his weight around the set, does he? Uh, we're very much looking forward to the coverage coming out of uh, Chernobyl and to find out whether you actually got wet in that thunderstorm that obviously kicked off in the middle of your interview. So we'll come back to you a little bit later on, Steve. The twists and turns of this week's Brexit developments have led to wild swings for Sterling. Steve was talking about the Italian view of Brexit. Well, we can give you the market view. It started on Tuesday when cable broke below 120 to a 35-month low. But as a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October started to look less likely, the pound hit its second best day of the year on Wednesday. It was a 3% swing in just 48 hours, and we're now sitting at a five-week high. The British Prime Minister has repeated his call for an election on the 15th of October, saying it's the only way to push forward Brexit. He had strong words when asked by a reporter about why uh, the bill... Uh, which will soon be passed by Parliament, forces him to ask the EU for a three-month extension to negotiations. Can you make a promise today to the British public that you will not go back to Brussels and ask for another delay to Brexit? Yes, and, sorry. I can. And would you I'd rather... rather be, I'd rather be dead in a ditch. Rather be dead in a ditch. Well, let's get out to Willem in Westminster. And Willem, just a few things to clear up here. One is uh, the departure of his brother. Uh, and second, um, what happens from here? 
So Joe Johnson, the Prime Minister's younger brother, has left his cabinet, will stand down as MP, saying he can't essentially reconcile family loyalties and the national interest. That's a pretty devastating blow for the Prime Minister's personal standing, one would imagine. And actually, if you watched his performance yesterday, giving a speech in front of dozens of police officers talking about things like investment in security forces here in the UK, it was not one of his better performances. He did look like he was slightly off his game. In terms of this call for another election, we'll actually see that made manifest on Monday, potentially. That's because the leader of the House of Commons, the man that Boris Johnson uses as his interface with the building behind me, Jacob Rees-Mogg, he announced yesterday they would be seeking a second vote on the idea of holding an early election. Of course, they were defeated when they tried that just a couple of nights ago. And the challenge is going to be whether Labour, the main opposition party here, is prepared to offer them approval for that election and when that election would be. And of course, what we're hearing again and again from Labour is they're not prepared to have an election until this legislation that's still currently being debated by the Lords today is made cast iron and signed into law. That could again happen as soon as Monday, which is why the government potentially is seeking that vote on election for the second time that day. But Labour not entirely decided as to whether they will allow a vote and push it through and have an election before that October 31st deadline, or whether they don't have even then enough trust in the Prime Minister and his advisers that they wouldn't try and push that election until November. Because, of course, the concern for Labour and some of the other parties, including the Scottish National Party, is that the government under Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson will campaign with this argument that they alone can deliver Brexit by that October 31st deadline. And, of course, that would potentially bring back that concern about a no-deal Brexit on that date, guys. Willem, thank you very much for bringing us the latest. Just doing a quick check on sterling this morning. 123.23 where we're trading well and truly off the lows uh, that we witnessed early in the week. Uh, but a six-week peak we've climbed to. So that tells you a little bit about positioning some of the hopes that we can avoid a, a hard Brexit in the marketplace. Coming up on the show, do central bankers have enough tools to tackle the next downturn? Billionaire investor Ray Dalio is less than optimistic. Are those details coming your way next? A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Payroll Friday, an economist polled by Dow Jones, think 150,000 jobs were added to the U.S. economy in the month of August. That's down from 164,000 in July. The unemployment rate is expected to hold steady at 3.7 percent. and average, hourly earnings are predicted to rise by 0.3 percent. Ray Dalio says he expects a 25 percent chance of a U.S. recession this year and in 2020. In an interview with Bloomberg, the billionaire investor behind Bridgewater Associates warned the world's major central banks will not have enough firepower to tackle the next crisis. 
He added the Fed should cut interest rates slowly, but did not give a time frame. So we've talked this around in circles a few times about whether an inverted yield curve is signaling a recession. Let's just go straight to Trump. Because there is a piece out today from Business Insider and they're talking about what's most important. Perhaps Trump needs to choose. He needs to choose tackling China or he needs to choose the economy. And in their analysis, they believe the choice for Trump is quite simple and he's made it pretty pretty plain that he will choose to tackle China. Which is interesting because if you think about some of the commentary he's made recently that, you know, trade war would be pretty easy to win. It sort of gives you the impression that if it's not, that he'll simply walk away. But what if that's not the case and he is willing to take the US economy into recession? The challenge then is uh, what you actually do, because um, the reaction function of the Fed probably kicks in at this point. Uh, the markets are vacillating between, is it 25 or is it 50 basis points? Um, if the Fed is forced to go 50 because of the decision that Trump takes here, that raises a dilemma for those who want to start being short some of the equities in this market. And the, the other problem is that even if he impacts earnings numbers, we know that earnings have been flat for the quarter already, but that doesn't mean that US equities can't grind higher. Interesting reading a piece from Datatrek this morning, just pointing out the S&P rallied by 29% from 2014 to 2016, even though earnings were essentially flat through that period. Mm. You're not getting any real clear visibility from the data. We had the ADP report, which was surprisingly better than expectations that we also had the ISM services number, which shows some strength against the backdrop of that weaker manufacturing number. So you've still got to make a, a very uh, difficult decision here if you decide you're going to go negative the equity. Well, if you are banking on a 50 basis point reduction anytime soon from the Fed, I've got to question that as well, because you know we're setting up for maybe having one uh, in uh, the next week or two from the Fed. However, with trade talks now back on the agenda, would you be cutting by 50 basis points with the sort of data you've also got at this point? Maybe if there were no talks inside, you might consider it. But I think that is another wild card that's just been sort of pushed out because you do have a potential progression in talks, which means what have you got? 25 basis point rate reduction from the Fed, no front loaded big stimulus delivered and maybe a little bit more later in the year if nothing transpires on trade. So the Fed will just be giving a little bit away at a time, not any big bang reduction in rates that could prop up an economy. Well, let's come back to where you first started here and come with me for a second, Karen. I have my trusty torch. Let's go inside the president's head and start looking around with our torch to see if we can actually get some visibility or some clarity on what his ultimate intention or end game is here Don't with regard to China. Let us out. It's very Let dark, <laughs> but strangely empty. Um, but the point is this, um, is the president intent upon manipulating the trade war story to get himself re-elected or is this really just about setting out a new agenda in the relationship and that meeting in early October will be successful and that's the problem isn't it what we've had is a series of rinse and repeat cycles where the markets lost faith gone down and the president has tweeted something about a meeting or more optimism or a telephone call and then the market's gone up again. I don't know how you're supposed to make money in this market if you are passive, because let's face it, the July highs have not been retaken, or you're active, the churn and the cycle is so aggressive, it's very hard to feel comfortable holding anything. Just the algorithms learning the cycle now, right? They've kicked in. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.